6, as we uh, are going through this process of, of nominating men to serve as elders, uh, as first elders at Grace Covenant Church, and presumably deacons. Um, technically, we don't have to have those, but I mean, I'm, you know. Um, so you don't want to make assumptions. It makes, puts me in a weird place. Do you assume we're going to have them? Or are we not going to have them? I mean, you know. Um, uh, but uh, in light of nominating officers, incidentally, I should have announced earlier. I don't know why I left that out. But the, the nomination forms are out on the table. Uh, as we mentioned last week, there are yellow ones and there are blue ones. Um, one is for one office. One is for the other. You'll just have to read and see which is which because I don't remember now. Um, but so you can grab those and you can turn those in to me today or the next two Sundays. But it seems appropriate in light of, of nominating and, and, and electing men to serve as elders and deacons to, to look at God's Word as we've had the last, the last two weeks and see what does God prescribe in uh, His Word for these offices. And so we, we looked two weeks ago at what an elder is. Uh, last week at what an elder does, uh, and today we will look at the office of deacon. Let me encourage you. Uh, you, you don't want to uh, go closing your Bibles when we uh, finish reading the passage because you won't be done. Uh, you're going to have to flip a couple of times to some other places. Uh, the, the truth, the reality of the office of, of deacon isn't all consumed in one simple place. And so keep your Bible open. Uh, you don't come to hear me. Uh, you come to hear God and his word. And so uh, we will look there together. Uh, it is our practice to stand when we read God's word. If you are able, uh, let me ask that you stand uh, with me now. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Uh, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work uh, in this, your inspired word. Uh, you inspired Dr. Luke to write these words for us. Uh, you have no doubt preserved them for us. We can trust them. We can rely on them. And we pray that you would use them to change our hearts, to change our minds, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Um, I can think of uh, a number of reasons why a church might split. And I might even be able to think of one or two reasons that would actually be good reasons why a church might split. But I can think of numerous reasons why a church might, uh, why a church might split. Uh, church conflict, uh, anytime there are, there's sort of conflict within the congregation, uh, we tend to sort of uh, create us and them mentalities. We tend to sort of rally tr- troops. We might even sort of grab people to be on our side or whatever. And anytime you can get that kind of division in a church, a split is frequently uh, inevitable. You might think of the New Testament church, or at least the, the church in Acts, and you, you may sort of in your mind go, oh man, if only we could get back to those days. If only we could get back to the church in Acts, because boy, those were the days. I mean, so close to when Jesus was around. I mean, the apostles are there. And so, I mean, that's got to be pretty cool. And I bet they didn't wrestle with, you know, carpet color conflict. And, you know, do we really want to meet in the library conflict? And wouldn't it be better if we could find another place? You know, all those sorts of things that, that we talk about. We have in our minds that perhaps this church in Acts was the idyllic place, peaceful, happy. If only we could get back to that church right there at the beginning of Acts in Jerusalem. And here we are in verse 1, and there's conflict. The Hellenists are complaining to the apostles. Uh, they're bringing complaints against the Hebrew, the Hellenists, the Greek speaking. So you've got this church that's made up of, well, it's multicultural. Uh, it's Greek speaking Jewish people converted to Christianity, Hebrew by birth, Jewish people by birth, Israelite people by birth converted to Christianity. They're all in the same church together. And there's conflict because the Greek-speaking folks are looking at the widows among them and going, hey, they're being neglected in this daily distribution. The Greek-speaking converts are complaining against the, 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 Helen, the Hebrew uh, converts because their widows are not being, they're not being given the food that they're supposed to be given. And maybe you're going, hold on, time out. What? Like, maybe we should be doing a better job of, of feeding orphans and widows within our congregation. And that may actually be true. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Back in Acts chapter 2, we get the beginning of uh, just what's going on here in this passage. In Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42, uh, Paul, uh, Peter has... has preached on this, this Pentecost sermon. The Holy Spirit comes and rests on everyone. Speaking in tongues. Hey, those people are drunk. All that sort of stuff. And the first part of Acts 2. Acts 2, beginning verse 42. And they devoted themselves, the, the, these new converts, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul. And, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Turn a page to Acts chapter 4. We see this again in Acts 4 verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which was son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see the the pattern here in the early part of Acts. Anytime someone in the congregation saw someone else in the congregation in need, they would sell stuff and take the money and give it to the church and let the church distribute to those who had need. It's not forced communism. It's not forced socialism. But it certainly does raise questions about how we treat uh, the needy within the congregation. It's the church at work through individuals. None of this is mandated by the government. You can have your communism, socialism discussion later. But the point is, the picture is that the church members were unwilling that any other church member be in need. Go hungry. Go without food. Go without the necessities of this life. And you see at the beginning of Acts 6, these Greek-speaking widows are being ignored, it appears, in the daily distribution. They seem to be left out of receiving what they should be getting from the apostles. And notice the, the racial, national, cultural conflict at work. The Greek speakers and the, the Israelites, the, the Hebrews by birth. The need that arises here in Acts 6 is a, a mercy ministry need, but it's a, it's, a, it's a mercy ministry need within the congregation, within the body. It's an internal problem. It's an in-house church problem. This isn't an issue with, um, this is not about supporting people outside the church. That's a different conversation for another time and another place. But you get the sense that within the body, the Hebrews were looking out for their people and the Greeks were looking out for their people and the Greeks were being left out. The Greek widows were being left out. In other words, we see at the beginning of Acts 6 the, the institution of the office of deacon. 
There's a mercy ministry need within the body. But notice there's also um, another need. Prior to Acts 6, and and I guess I don't really know the time lapse um, from Acts 2 to Acts 6. I can't imagine that that it's very long. It's not a a really significant uh, time lapse. But clearly here in Acts 6, and we saw it in Acts 4 as well, the apostles were the ones in charge of collecting the money from the sold property and distributing that to the church. So there's a a dual need going on here in Acts chapter 6. Because look at verse 2. The twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Either the work of caring for these widows got too great and got too time-consuming that they couldn't add that to their Word and prayer uh, service, their Word and prayer ministry as it was. Or they finally reached a point where they say, this is not right at all. Not just that we can't, but now it's actually not right. It's time to raise up other people to, to meet this particular need. To meet the physical needs of those within the congregation. And it's the apostles who say, look, here's the plan. We're going to raise up new men. We're going to create a new office. We're going to, we're going to start a new office within this body because it's not right for us to give up the word and prayer. The need is there are those in the congregation who lack, who are going without food. And that, that need needs to be met. But the other need is that the apostles shouldn't be doing that. And so we see the institution of the office of deacon. Second, notice investing the authority in the office. Uh, the, the authority actually comes both from the congregation and from the apostles. Look at the plan. Uh, read the plan in verse uh, 2. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers, and this is the apostles telling the congregation, here's what we're going to do. You are going to pick out from among you seven men of, with a good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and then we will appoint them to this Duty. So the congregation has a, a role in the election of these new deacons. Pick seven. Why seven? I don't know. Nobody tells us. They probably quickly said, seven's enough for the work that we have. You bring us the names and then we will authorize them to carry out these Duties. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. I want you to notice something. Because in, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, Paul, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing to Pastor Timothy, uh, lays out the qualifications for the office of elder at the first part of the chapter and then for the office of deacon in the second part. Look at First uh, Timothy 3 verse 10. He says, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Paul says to Timothy, look, these people need to be known among the congregation. The congregation needs to know who they are. They need to be tested. We need to know if they actually have the gift and the character to be deacons. And you guys need to be able to see that and recognize that in the lives of these deacons. Before you select them to the office, you need to know who they are and know their character and examine them and test them. And then verse 10 tells us, make them... We'll make them deacons. But notice that uh, selecting these men to be uh, deacons to the office of deacon isn't just all one-sided. Both the congregation and the apostles have a, a role to play, a part to play. Not even the apostles would say, well, look, we're just going to do it. We're just going to pick some people and we'll make them deacons and then y'all can get over it. No, instead they said, look, you pick the men and then we'll have our part to play in that as well. You pick them and then we will appoint them to the office. And for that matter, they later uh, will ordain them. They actually lay hands on them and ordain them to the office. In other words, an officer's authority comes both from the congregation and from the apostles. It, it works both ways. The congregation's role is to, to choose the men who meet those qualifications, present those names, those people to uh, the apostles, to the session. And then the body is saying, look, these are men we can follow. These are men we can serve with. These are men that, that we think fit the qualifications, the character and the gifts to be deacons. And now you ordain them to this office. In fact, in verse 5, we get a um, notice the, the recommendation of the apostles. The apostles say, here's how the process, verse 3 and 4, here's the process. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole congregation and they chose. So there you see the congregation at work in choosing men to be deacons. The apostles had a role in investing the deacons with uh, the authority to serve as deacons. We see that they lay hands on them in verse 6 and ordain them, set them apart to that office. You should, I presume, over the next several months, you'll see that pattern played out in the life of Grace Covenant Church. Where you nominate men to, to serve as elders and deacons and where uh, the elders will then uh, lay hands on them, ordain them, set them apart to that office. The institution of the office of deacon, investing of the authority of uh, of deacons. Third, we see the instructions for uh, the deacon's character. Look at verse 3 of, of Acts 6. In Acts 6, there are three um, qualifications for uh, the office of deacon, sort of character qualifications that they uh, give. Pick from among you uh, seven men with a good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And we will appoint them to this duty. Does that passage sound at all familiar to you? 
Does that sound like something you've ever heard? Does that resonate? Does it sound at all like a verse that you and I might treat almost like a throwaway verse, quite honestly? At the end of Luke chapter 2, we get 18 years of Jesus' life summarized in one verse. In Luke uh, 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you hear it? That's echoed right here in verse 3. There's one, uh, one of those things missing. Here's the good news. Deacons don't have a height requirement. Did you notice? Jesus grows in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and favor with men. Deacons, the, the stature part is absent. So none of you has to, well, you know, it must be this tall to be a deacon. No, they don't, we don't have those things. Uh, that part of the description of Jesus' growth and maturity in Luke 2 is absent from the qualifications for deacon. Because in verse 3, good reputation and man, full of the Spirit, relationship to God, and of wisdom. You're looking for men who have a good reputation, who won't bring a mar on the name of Christ, sort of black marks, as it were, on the name of Christ. You you can have, and I mean, we could we could look. Turn to First Timothy three again, and notice just real quickly as you read through the qualifications for the office of deacon must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dis, for dishonest gain, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, you can see how those uh, qualifications, those character traits fit under the three headings given to us in Acts chapter 6. It would be easy to think dignified means knows how to walk around with his nose in the air and talks perhaps with an almost British accent and looks down on everyone who doesn't and has that kind of an attitude. But in reality, it means that he's above reproach. It means that his character is not one thing in the church and something else in the world. That the people in the church and the people in the world outside the church see the same thing in Him. So His character is one that is above reproach. He's, he's growing in favor with men, as it were. But he's also growing in favor with God. Notice verse 9 of, of 1 Timothy 3. He holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He understands and believes and is committed to the authority of God's Word. So the picture in 1 Timothy 3 is, is explanation. It's clarification. It's um, further sort of drawing out the three headings we get in Acts chapter 6. Men of good reputation. Men who are committed to loving others and have a good name in the community. People who love God and are committed to 
the authority of His Word and are growing in godliness and holiness. You know, you can see why these things would matter for the office of deacon. Because you think about what this role does. These are people who will know things like who has physical needs? Who's struggling financially? Who's struggling to put food on the table? Who's having a a difficult time making ends meet? They'll know that information. You want people who aren't going to go around talking about it. They aren't going to be saying things about it behind people's back. You want people with a a good reputation who are are wise and, and know how to hold on to that information with godliness. They have access to funds to to help people. You want to know that you can trust them, that they're not going to be greedy and stingy and, and writing themselves checks under the table. It's a, you can see the importance, the value of the office of deacon having a good reputation, being above reproach, having a good character, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. We see the institution of the office investing of his authority, the instructions for his character, and finally we see implications for the church. Let me make a few observations as this relates to Grace Covenant Church. First is this. There are people out there who think that church structure that conversations about church government are a waste of time. That they're pointless, they're fruitless, and for that matter, they're just man-made rules, man-made practices that we impose on the church. Notice the Bible is not opposed to church structure. It actually commands it. It actually lays out uh, what a church structure should look like. We don't believe that church government uh, and structure is immaterial, uh, that it doesn't matter, that you can do whatever you want. We believe that Scripture has actually laid out for us Presbyterian church government. A plurality of elders, deacons within the local congregation Authority both from below and from above. But I want you to notice something. Organization, especially in Acts, is never just about organization. Almost every single time you read something about a church government or church organization matter, it's followed by something like verse 7. And the Word of God grew. Now, I'm sorry, but how many times would we expect a conversation about government in the church lead to the growth of the kingdom of God? And that's exactly what happens here in this passage. Because the church ordained deacons, the gospel went forth 
more powerfully, more fervently, more clearly to more people. The Word of God grows because of church government. Be encouraged by that. We long for the Gospel to grow, for the Kingdom to grow, even through this process as we nominate and elect elders and deacons. could be, of course, that the conflict was handled in a, a biblical manner and so that prevented a church split and that therefore increased or improved the congregation's witness to the watching world. It could be that the church, because of this newfound structure, is actually better equipped, better able to reach uh, the lost and equip the saints to gather and perfect the saints. It may be that as the deacons are, are meeting the physical needs of those within the congregation and the apostles are meeting the spiritual needs of those within the congregation, then the church is better equipped to grow, to reach the lost and expand God's kingdom. And as we do these things, we're better representatives of Christ on the earth. Uh, a second application. Turn to First uh, Timothy chapter three again. I want you to notice something in First um, Timothy three. Again, it's a, a similar sort of pattern in First Timothy three. In the in the first seven verses, you've got the qualifications for uh, elders, and then in verses eight through thirteen, you get uh, qualifications, explanation of the office of deacon, and notice what happens. In verses 14 through 16, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. In other words, after talking about the kind of person to look for in an elder and a deacon, Paul breaks out into a praise song. Yours, perhaps it's written like poetry as it is in mine. Paul breaks out into this, this song of praise after giving qualifications for elders and deacons. Why on earth would he do that? Well, because at the very least, Paul knows the gospel changes people. The gospel takes root in our hearts and it makes us new. We've said before, and I'll say it again even now, as we read the qualifications for elder and deacon, it would be tempting for us to go, well, I'm not going to be either one of those, so none of these things matter to me. The reality is these are qualifications for Christians. These are the goal of, of Christian growth for everyone who follows Christ. And Paul breaks forth into praise at the end of that chapter. Why? Because he recognizes that that's what the gospel produces. He sings a gospel song 
in response to these qualifications because these qualifications come in those in whom the gospel has taken root. In other words, the gospel is not just for those people out there. It's for us people in here. It's not just for them. It's also for us. You and I need the Gospel to change us, to take root in our hearts and lives, for the Spirit to be at work in and by His Word to produce this as the fruit of the Gospel in our lives. For that matter, all of this comes from Jesus. Apart from God's grace, none of these things would be true in anyone. There would be no elders. There would be no deacons. There would, there would be no one to recognize those gifts and, and, and qualifications in them because we're all dependent on God's grace to produce this in our lives. And when we know it, being nominated to office won't puff us up. It'll actually humble us. It'll have the opposite effect. Rather than make us proud and want to lord it all over everyone around us, well, I'm an elder here now, I'm a deacon here now, so you guys need to kiss my ring. The reality is, only Christ can do this in His people. And when others recognize that in you, it doesn't drive arrogance. It fuels humility. A third application from this passage. Jesus cares about you. The church sees widows, specifically in the context of Acts 6, sees widows who are struggling to make ends meet. And the church said, we love her because she's us. She's one of us. And we're going to love and care for our own. Why? Because Christ does. You might need more than anything to know that whatever it is you're dealing with, financial spiritual, physical or spiritual, whether it's, whether it's money related or relationship related or whatever the case may be, Jesus cares about it. And Jesus longs to bring healing for you and to you. And He just might use the people sitting across this room to make that happen. To bring that healing. That's why we need the church. It's why we need each other. It's why He doesn't call us to Himself and then say, there's an island, go live there, good luck with all that. No, He says, you know what, I'm going to put you in a body. Why? Because you need them. And because, quite honestly, they need you. The question is, how can we love and serve each other? How can we model Christ's love for His people in the way we love and care for one another? Oh, that Christ would grow the gospel. That we could say because of what we do here at Grace Covenant, the Word of God grew 
The Lord added to their number daily. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You for a Savior who came and, yes, brought spiritual healing and restoration. Yes, came to accomplish our salvation, to live the holy and righteous life that we cannot and we would not, and for that matter, we didn't even want to. And suffered and bled and died on the cross to pay for sins He didn't commit, but that we did. And then rose again three days later to defeat sin and Satan because we need a a victor. We need a substitute. We need someone to defeat sin and Satan in our place. But Father, we also thank You that Christ came and healed. That He gave sight to the blind. He cared for the poor and the needy. He made the lame to walk. He healed the leper. Father, we pray that we would care about the physical needs of the body. That we would be glad to part with this world's goods to show evidence, to care for, to love well our brothers and sisters in need. I pray that You would use this process, the office of deacon, to grow the Gospel here at Grace Covenant in us and through us and in our community, that You truly would add to our number daily. For it's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen.